Good evening. I'm Anthony Robustelli, author of I Want to Tell You, The Definitive Guide to the Music of the Beatles, and this is the Beatles' multi-track meltdown. Each week I'll be playing stripped-down, deconstructed mixes of classic Beatles songs, highlighting different instruments and vocals in a way that will truly amaze you. Imagine sitting in the control room at EMI Studios and having the opportunity to peel away the layers of a song, discovering new elements that you never knew existed. This is the closest you can get to that experience. So sit back, tune in, and enjoy the Beatles' multi-track meltdown. I'll make you maybe next time A few shows back, we celebrated the 100th episode of the Beatles' multi-track meltdown. And Ford, I decided to do things a bit differently and invite a few friends who also happen to be renowned Beatles authors to pick two songs and tell me what makes them special. I've only had a guest on once before when my daughter Ella, an incredible musician and self-proclaimed Beatles freak, co-hosted episode 71, The Musical Children of the Beatles. I realized immediately that once you begin talking to fellow Beatle fans, especially ones who have written countless books about the group, the discussions can get pretty deep. Therefore, episode 100 ended up being nearly three hours long. So in order to preserve the full conversations with each author, I split what was supposed to be one episode into three. So sit back and enjoy part three and the selections of David Bedford, Andrew Grant Jackson, and Ken Womack. We're traveling across the Atlantic, well, not literally, to the birthplace of the Beatles, Liverpool, to speak with our first guest, David Bedford, author of Liddy Pool, The Fab 104, co-author of The Fourth Beatle, and associate producer and historian for the film Looking for Lennon a man who always seems to be working on new Beatles-related project. Hey, Dave. Hey, Andy. Yeah, you're very true. I've, I've done a way to get time to sleep. I understand. I know. Every time I turn around, there's some new Beatles product coming from you and from Liverpool, which I'm never going to complain about. <laughs> yeah, keeps me busy. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, so what are the two songs that you picked, and what is it about them that makes them pop for you, that makes them special? Well, the, of course, I've got to pick two Liverpool songs. Um, the first one, Penny Lane, because it's a song that f- so few people actually understand. Uh, when I was doing uh, Liddy Pool, so the first book, and I was just reading up on, you know, it's memories of, of Paul's childhood and stuff. And so we assumed, you know, there's a fireman in there because Paul's dad was a, a volunteer fireman during the war. And there was a nurse in there because Paul's mum was a nurse. So I thought, yeah, fair enough. Then I, I started talking to uh, a school friend of John's, and he said he knew who the pretty nurse was. Wow. And he says, the pretty nurse and the whole story, that whole verse has got nothing to do with Paul. I went, okay, I'm listening. So he starts to tell me the story and says, no, the, the nurse, her name was Beth Davidson. Um, she was 14 years old. She was a nurse cadet selling poppies for Remembrance Day. And this guy, Stan, was next to her at the shelter in the middle of the roundabout at Penny Lane when John Lennon and Pete Shotton walk up to talk to them. And that's what's captured in that verse. Because I said, well, where does Paul McCartney come into this? He said, it's got nothing to do with Paul. That's that's new. So so, so why is John writing about your friend who's a nurse cadet? said, ah, she wasn't just anybody. She was the girlfriend of Pete Shotton and later became Pete Shotton's wife. Really? And so John put his best friend's wife into a Beatles song and nobody knew. That's a great story. It, and it's incredible. So when I thought, okay, I've got one person's 
um, word on this. So we put the story into the Liverpool Echo. Two ladies got in touch with me. They told me exactly the same story because they had grown up as friends of Stan and Beth. And they told me exactly the same thing. Their connection with Pete Shotton. And see, I started then looking into it and think, okay, so why is John wanting a verse in Penny Lane? Now that I've lived around here for the last nearly 30 years, you realise that the Penny Lane roundabout is the centre of this, this whole part of Liverpool. Three different Liverpool suburbs all meet at the roundabout. So it's known as the Penny Lane roundabout, even though on a map it's called Smithdown Place. But local people just refer to it as that. But the whole local area is known as the Penny Lane area. And that includes, just off the roundabout, Nine Newcastle Road, where John Lennon spent his first five years. So when you start digging into it, you realise that John grew up there. He was getting the bus to the Penny Lane roundabout every day going to school. So until almost 11, John was always at Penny Lane. George was doing exactly the same thing, either walking to school, getting the bus to school to Penny Lane. So until he was 11, he was always there. They were coming there to get the haircut. Paul was in the church choir at the top of Penny Lane. He, Paul would take the school bus through Penny Lane and back every day. Once I started digging into the geography, I realised that for the songs to be in their ears and in their eyes, what they were actually saying was, for John, Paul and George, the song of Penny Lane is their childhood. It's so important. Right, and it was important to all three of them. So I'm sure as Paul was working on it, it makes a lot of sense that John wanted to put in his viewpoint or just a memory as well, especially since something like In My Life originally when he was writing the original lyrics named places and was apparently more Penny Lane-ish in the lyrical content before he switched it around and made it more of a universal thing rather than a specific place. So I'm sure he was like, I have all these things that I wanted to put in a song too, so I got to get something in here. Yeah. Exactly. So it's it's a personal song for them, which very few people understand. So I thought it's it's you have to know the area to understand why it is all important to them. You know, why it's this important crossroads. You know, it's so busy. Say three suburbs all meet at that roundabout. It was where they would meet when they're playing on the quarrymen. It's where they get the bus to when they go into the uh, see the pictures, go to the chip shop, whatever. It was just, it was the place that kept bringing them back all the way from childhood right through their teens into the Quarrymen days. It's an amazing place to visit. You definitely feel the history the first time you go there and you're just standing and just looking around and imagining, you know, what was going on back in the 50s and when they were growing up. And and it's an amazing place to be. It, it, it's it's a fabulous place and it's it's great when you know friends come over and I, I do Beatles tours as well and I take people there and say just stand here and just look. You could drive past here and not know you've been somewhere so important, but if you stop and you just start to take it all in, then explain the geography, then they start to understand exactly. why it's such an important place right the way through their their early years. That is amazing. All right, so we're going to stick with Liverpool so I can imagine what the other song is. Hmm. What's the flip side of that one, then? I guess that would be (laughs) Strawberry Fields Forever. Of course, of course. Um, You know, the only double A sides they did, two amazing songs. Um, And I I love everything about the song of Strawberry Fields Forever. 
Um, again, when you understand the geography, people think now the, the famous red gates, they have the picture taken there every day. Hundreds of people go past. But the red gates side of Strawberry Field meant very little to John. He maybe went through there once a year to like um, have a summer fair on site or something like that. For John, Strawberry Field was the rear boundary of the grounds, which was on Vale Road, just behind his um, house at Mendips. So instead of going through the official front gates, John, and particularly his three friends, uh, Ivan Bourne, Nigel, Wally, Pete, Shotton, they used to climb over the wall and they go and play in the grounds there. So, of course, they were trespassing because it was a Salvation Army orphanage. They shouldn't be there. But, you know, you've got four lads and a, and a big wall and private property. What are you going to do? You're going to climb the wall, aren't you? You have to. And so when John was filming How I Won the War out in Almeria in Spain, he was staying in a big house surrounded by a big wall where he could hear children playing the other side. And it took him back to Strawberry Field and those days. And I think one, one of the great things about why it was special for John was it was at a time before music, before Beatles, before all the madness started. And I think it was that time of innocence that he looked back fondly on with, with his friends. I find it it's always interesting that both of them were feeling that nostalgia around the same time you know they they also always knew what the other person was working on so something would spark something else but it really was the perfect uh single the the two songs together and i'm one that you know i know that initially it was supposed to be a part of sergeant pepper but i look at it as its own entity it really is enough with those two songs it's almost like an entire album yeah well i think that was the original idea i know it's something um bill harry's commented on a number of times um, is the fact that after doing In My Life and that initial draft mentioning Penny Lane, all those places, and they started work on, on the songs of Penny Lane and Strawberry Fields Forever, that they did think about creating a Liverpool album. Right. And so in some ways it's complete with the double A side, but it gives you a glimpse of maybe what Sergeant Pepper could have been before it went down the route that it did. Right, exactly. Um, Had Paul not come up with the big idea of Sgt. Pepper and, and all of that, they might have continued on with more songs about their childhood and about exactly. their home. Yeah. Yeah, so that could have been interesting. Um, but I, I think it's nice that at the, the peak of their fame, that where it took them back to it was two very, very important places from their formative years. And I think also, I think they like the idea that Unless you were from Liverpool, and particularly that part of Liverpool, that only they knew what they were writing about. Right. Nobody else in the world would get it. And I think they, would, they liked the idea of having the private joke. Almost, almost like when you end up with the, with the Paul is dead thing going on, and I think, oh, this is actually quite funny. Then think, do we put these subliminal messages into records and things? They wanted to have something different, and I think... Maybe almost like with Procol Harum with The Whitest Shade of Pale or with the Hotel California, where the songwriters are playing with you but will never fully reveal what the song's about. Right. I think that, that just gave them a little bit more control back, which is saying, we know what these songs mean to us. You take out of what you want. 
but we know what it's really all about. Right, because they had given so much to the world and they were constantly, their lyrics were scrutinized and people paid attention to every move they made that I'm sure having a little something that was just for them gave them a real sense of accomplishment, especially, you know, when you're thinking, well, what else can we do here? We've done so much in these few years. How can we go further? Yeah, exactly. And they were always looking at uh, doing something different. You know, with Sgt. Pepper, you know, they looked at the artsy side of doing the cover design with the gatefold, with the lyrics. You know, they were always looking to do something different. They were never happy just to stay doing what they were doing. They wanted to put something extra in. But I think, yeah, they loved the idea of knowing something that all these experts who thought they knew everything and teasing, pulling apart everything they wrote, they wouldn't know this. They wouldn't be able to understand it because they didn't grow up in that part of Liverpool. And that's why we're still talking about them to this day. (laughs) Absolutely. All right. Well, here we go with Penny Lane and Strawberry Fields Forever. Thanks, Dave. My pleasure. In Penny Lane, there is a barber showing photographs Of every head he's had the pleasure to know And all the people that come and go Stop and say hello On the corner is a banker with a motor car The little children laughing him behind his back And the banker never wears a mac In the pouring rain Very strange Penny Lane is in my ears And in my eyes There beneath the blue Suburban skies I sit and Meanwhile back in Penny Lane There is a fireman with an hourglass And in his pocket is a portrait of the Queen He likes to keep his fire engine clean It's a clean machine Behind the shelter in the middle of the roundabout A pretty nurse is selling poppies from a tray And though she feels as if she's in a play She is anyway In Penny Lane the barber shaves another customer We see the banker sitting waiting for a trim And then the fireman rushes in From the pouring rain Very strange Penny Lane is in my ears And in my eyes There beneath the blue Suburban skies I sit and Meanwhile back in Penny Lane Is in my ears And in my eyes Beneath the blue suburban skies 
You know, tune in, but it's all right. That is, I think it's not too bad. Let me take you down, cause I'm going to Strawberry Fields. Nothing is real, and nothing to get hung about. Strawberry Fields forever. Always know, sometimes think it's me But you know I know when it's a dream I think I know, I mean, uh, yes, but it's all wrong That is, I think I disagree Let me take you down Cause I'm going to Strawberry Fields Nothing is real And nothing to get hung about Strawberry feels forever Strawberry feels forever Strawberry feels forever
Our next guest, Andrew Grant Jackson, is the author of Still the Greatest, The Essential Songs of the Beatles' Solo Careers, 1965, The Most Revolutionary Year in Music, and the vividly illustrated books Where's Ringo and Where's Elvis. Hey, Andrew. Hey, how you doing, Anthony? I'm good. Great to have you here. So, what are the two songs that you chose, and what specific elements of the songs make them really pop for you? Um, the two songs I chose were If I Needed Someone from Rubber Soul and uh, Rain, uh, the B-side of Paperback Writer. And um, there's, you know, many elements in both songs that, you know, originally made them pop. But uh, the one that I kind of uh, thought of when you mentioned this was uh, the bass on both of them. I really, uh, as I, you know, when I was younger, it was the guitars and the vocals that really grabbed me. But at some point when I uh, got older, and I guess I listened to him about 70 billion times, suddenly the one night, and if I needed someone, the bass just really hit me. And I suddenly realized that's a really groovy bass, which is kind of, kind of a corny word, but that it almost seems like the perfect word for that bass. Definitely. Know, really j- jumped out. Cool. Yeah. McCartney, was leading up, I think, um, in many ways through even the early years, there are lots of songs where he's hinting at where he's going with, uh, his melodic ideas and, and the funkiness of his bass players. A lot of times people don't think of McCartney as a funky bass player, but he was a huge fan of Motown and James Jamerson. And I think especially with songs like if I needed someone in the word and drive my car on rubber soul, he started hinting toward, uh, uh, as you said, a groovier style of playing, which then, you know, I think continued throughout the rest of the Beatles career and then into his solo career as well. There was, yeah, there was an interesting thing. I was looking at a uh, Wikipedia just for, you know, uh, little tidbits when I knew I was going to talk to you. And it said, and if I needed someone entry, uh, his playing on the track inaugurated an ostinato heavy style that would feature prominently on the band's, 66 recordings particularly rain oh nice i'm I'm not like a music theory i don't even know how to play the bass but do you know what that ostinato heavy style is? well yeah it's really him um pedaling on a on a a note where there's chord changes and things moving around on top of it but he's really sticking with a pedal tone so he's just playing even though it's not one note it's the root note along with whatever embellishments he's doing so it gives you like a drone like quality which you know we would hear a lot more of going into 66 and beyond where you know something like a tomorrow never knows is a good example and pre if i needed someone uh ticket to ride is one of the early examples of them uh, just hanging on a chord for a long period of time. But you can even go back earlier and look at I Want to Be Your Man from their second album with the Beatles and look at that f- whole A section where it really is just one chord on the bass while you know some things are moving along on top. He's keeping this ostinato pattern. And if you compare it to the Rolling Stones version of the same song, the Stones decided not to do that and do the movement between the chords, uh, whereas the Beatles decided to just lay this heavy bottom down. Uh, and that's you know going back to 63. So I think McCartney always had that in his head that it would work for certain things. But as the 60s went on, it became... Uh, more of a thing for them, especially with the influence of Indian music that George brought in 
which heavily relies on the drone. Right. You know, I want to ask you too. It was, this is, I was thinking about this when I was thinking about what we would talk about. And I remember, I don't know, 20 years ago or something when I was in college, I had friends, you mentioned the Rolling Stones and in retrospect, this was like an ignorant kind of line of thinking, it seemed like, but the, the line was that, oh, the Beatles had no bottom and the Stones were like, you know, heavy bass, you know, they were better with the bass. But but then it seems like in the, there's been a revisionist appreciation of McCartney. And is that because like the audio quality, they've gone back in the remastering and pulled out the bass, whereas before you know what, they were? I think that until we got into even probably the 80s, I think as a rhythm section, McCartney and Starr were really underrated um, where people, the the songwriting of the Beatles and the production of their albums and just how prolific they were and how they could really change their sound from album to album in comparison to a lot of their contemporaries from the 60s, like the Stones or the Yardbirds, where... I'm not saying they didn't grow and change because they definitely did. You compare 60 stones to 70 stones, it's it's a whole different animal. But within the confines of like, you know, 64 to 65 or 65 to 66, I think people focused on how the Beatles could really change their whole sound. And a lot of times their musicianship got sort of put to the side even Harrison as a guitarist I don't think it was until much later that people revisited it and said wow you know these guys are actually really good players I I remember reading an article when the Beatles rock band came out um and people drummers were trying to play some of these Ringo parts and try to you know get a hundred percent on expert and we're having a really hard time I think even some of the creators of rock band when they were trying to you know play Ringo's parts in the office you know something like I'm the walrus you realize wow this is really a complex drum part especially at the end the bass and the drums together so I think you know, people just looked back at it and said, oh, wait a second, maybe we should be paying a little bit more attention to the playing. And that's when I think uh, McCartney's bass playing did become a little bit more of a focus. It was Lennon, actually, who said that, you know, McCartney's an egomaniac about everything except his bass playing. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. But I think he could be an egomaniac about that because I think definitely as a, a rock bass player, I think he's one of the best. Like I say, I don't play bass, but it, it seems like there's so many songs that uh, it really jumps out at me. Like, um, you know, Baby, I'm a Rich Man, and oh, Come Together, obviously, love. Dear Prudence. Right, yeah, it goes on and on. He was definitely, you know, something. That's a great bass part. I know George thought it was a little busy, but, you know, I've heard, I'm sure you have too, when people have covered the song or done tributes to George, um, and I've heard people you know, cop McCartney's bass part and it sounds great. And I've heard people, you know, simplify it and do their own thing and it never sounds quite the same. So I know that it, although George has mentioned, you know, he thought that the bass part was a little showy on something. I just think it's part of the whole song and something that makes it really beautiful. It, that's funny with if, um, if I needed someone to, the bass jumped out of me. I wonder sometimes if, you know, if, uh, Paul is 
sort of drawing attention to himself in both those songs. You know, like he he doesn't like to be totally in the background, so he's doing something to get you know, attention. It's, it's or... very funny because John, you know, this is the 70s John when he's, you know, a little bit angry about the Beatles and says a lot of things. Um, he said that in his opinion, he thought a lot of times McCartney would try to overplay on songs that weren't his. And McCartney, in his defense, in another completely separate article, once said that he thought that he came up with his most inventive bass parts when it wasn't his song because he wasn't focused on being the singer and the writer and putting all his effort into that, and he was able to just be a bass player. So he thought he came up with some of his most creative parts on songs that weren't his. So, could and be. I think that's that's true. Like if you if, with the solo stuff, think of. I mean, I love John's things, but think of like a whole, the whole other level, like uh, McCartney would have brought to him. You know, if because if, uh, John could sometimes be a little samey, you know, yeah, right. his arrangements or whatever. But uh, and interestingly, he used Klaus Vormann a lot on his uh, work, at least the first few albums he did, and Klaus. I think modeled a lot of his bass playing on McCartney. I think he did a lot of McCartney-esque things, um, but not, in my opinion, at the level that, you know, McCartney would have done him. Uh, I, I think everybody, most people think that had the Beatles continued together in the 70s, you know, as your book puts things together in a way that you could almost create albums of their best work from each time period in the 70s you can create some fantastic albums that had everybody in the beatles been a part of i i you know dare say it that they would be albums better than their solo catalog and i don't think a lot of people would disagree with that because you have to look at you know when you have one person writing an entire album of material and you know you might get some songs that aren't as fantastic as others but when you have like a lennon a mccartney and a harrison at that point uh, you know you take their best material from 1970 that was solo material and you create an album or even a double album it's probably going to be a stronger album because you're going to cut out the the fat or the filler that might have been on a solo record yeah definitely yeah so that's what that's what got on their that's what was some of the tension in 69 or, or so, right? Because they, they all suddenly started having so many tunes and they had to, you know, George kept getting knocked off. <laughs> right, you know, right. Pushed, so. And George always said, you know, you write songs, you want to get them recorded. It's your ego. You want to get them recorded and get them out there so you can write more songs. So that's what we have. So the second song that we want to talk about here is Rain from 1966, the flip side of Paperback Writer. I I always loved the uh, the drumming on that. I like I thought uh, Ringo was trying to keep up with Keith Moon, and but then one day I, I was like, whoa, the bass is equally, uh, you know, just uh, fascinating. And I was I was reading that um, I guess they played the song when they recorded it super fast, and then they played it back, just the uh, you know the the music, they, and then they played it back. A, a little bit slower so it had this uh you know weird sound that people really couldn't put their finger on when it came out you know but uh then then i guess they then 
I guess John, they sped up John's vocal just a little bit. You know, this is before we're talking about the ending where they go backwards. But it, uh, so I guess I don't did, did did slowing down that song even make his bass more kind of prominent? Yeah, I think it made things so thick and swampy uh, when you listen to the song recorded at its original tempo and pitch. It it sounds pretty different. You know, it still sounds cool, but it doesn't sound nearly as striking as when everything slowed down. Everything just takes on this thick quality. Um, and I think that's one of the best examples of Starr and McCartney playing off each other and playing together. And, you know, it, it, it's just a fantastic performance. Uh, the guitars are really thick on top, but it really is the, the bass and the drums are, are the stars of that. It, kind of like a, um, Tomorrow Never Knows, too, at that same period. They were just, uh, they really had a great rhythm section going there. Yeah, they were really locked in and uh, just laying down parts that worked so well and, and in so many cases really made the song just come together. <laughs> not, not, no pun intended, but really laid down the foundation for some fantastic recordings and rain one of my favorites and i'm sure many people love the way that star and mccartney play off of each other i i always wondered um i was thinking about this you know yesterday when we when i knew we were going to talk about it uh i wonder was there anything else like this song when this came out or was this kind of the first one that was really just weird like when people heard it they're like what, what there wasn't any precedent for it or were there precedents for this kind of i weird? don't really think in pop music there were you know there wasn't backwards um recording had been done in like avant-garde classical music and uh, maybe in some film scoring things but just as a pop record doing that slowing down the backing track uh the i think it's really like it's before true psychedelia of 67 when you know people always say that that was the year that it really blew up uh with the summer of love and all of that but i think this is one of the earliest psychedelic songs by the beatles because it swirls around in a way that you know it's pretty amazing considering it's still really just a four-piece band you know, there's a little organ in there but it's not full of session musicians and orchestras and horns and so much of what we would see the next year with pepper it's really basically still you know the four-piece beatles and it sounds completely different than the four-piece beatles from a year before yeah you know was, i was thinking like in 65 they were fantastic but it almost seems like you could trace a lot of their the things that they did to artists who were influence, influencing them like the the guitar and if I needed someone was, you know, his George's homage to the birds who had actually been inspired by his guitar and a right. night. So, but it was, you could see where that was coming from. And then the lyrics, you know, you know, the Dylan influence, but this seems like, uh, the kind of just the uh, thing that was out of the box. There wasn't anybody so much, uh, influencing them. It was more their own originality with this one. Or something. Yeah, I definitely think so. I think that rain, um, was definitely a song that showed 
where they were about to go with everything, uh, with sixty rest of sixty six and revolver album, the revolver album and Pepper Magical Mystery Tour. I think this was definitely one of the early songs that was like, oh, okay, this is what's happening now. So, uh, great choice, especially for the bass and the drums. Thanks. Cool. Well, we're gonna hear if I needed someone from Rubber Soul and Rain, the flip side of Paperback Writer. Thanks, Andrew. Thank you. One, two, three, four.
I can show you I can show you Rain I don't mind Shine My next guest, Ken Womack, is the author and editor of several books devoted to the Beatles, including Reading the Beatles, Cultural Studies, Literary Criticism, and The Fab Four, Long and Winding Roads, The Evolving Artistry of the Beatles, The Cambridge Companion to the Beatles, and The Beatles Encyclopedia, Everything Fab Four. In 2017, he released the first volume of his biography on Sir George Martin, Maximum Volume, The Life of Beatles Producer, George Martin, The Early Years, 1926 to 1966, and followed it in 2018 with the second volume, Sound Pictures, The Life of Beatles Producer, George Martin, The Later Years, 1966 to 2016. He's also written a number of award-winning novels, and if that wasn't enough to keep him busy, he's the dean of Monmouth University, where a phenomenal symposium on the Beatles' White Album just took place, which I was honored to be a part of. So great to have you here, Ken. Oh, so glad to be here, Anthony. So over the past three episodes, I've been speaking to a number of different Beatles authors, and we've talked about everything from harmonic structure to Shakespeare to funky bass lines. So for your two songs... What did you pick? Two songs that you know, have something special to you. Well, I, I chose uh, Happiness is a Warm Gun and Martha, My Dear. Very cool. All right. Well, what is it about those two songs, which both happen to be on the White Album, which is apparently the year of the White Album? What is it about them that makes it special? Well, I and I did uh, make my selection precisely because it's the year of the White Album. <laughs> um, I... I, I think they typify, since you and I came of age, for the most part, in the age of the CD, and I think a lot of uh, the folks from our generation understand that very clearly. Um, you know, for folks like us, when we listen to those CDs, we would hear those songs play one after the other. And it really typified for me the amazing, the most amazing quality uh, of that album, and that is the way that it goes from one extreme to another one genre to another. It goes from just a primitive, raw uh, rock song about heroin and, and you know, hypersexuality into another song about a sheepdog with a Dixieland jazz break. Yeah, that is one of the things that I love so much about the White Album. And I think one of the reasons for many people it's their favorite album is 
because it covers everything. I, you know, the Beatles always changed, but a lot of times it would be album to album. You know, A Hard Day's Night might have had ballads on them along with rockers, but it still had a certain sound and a certain feel. And I think right up until you get to the White Album, you have that, even with something like Pepper. It's swirling around in psychedelia and everything from She's Leaving Home to Lovely Rita to A Day in the Life, it does have a vibe and a sound to it. Whereas the White Album, just song to song, it goes from zero to 60. It just does everything and does everything well. Yeah, it's constantly on the move. And um, those songs with the transition one to the other really stick with me. Um, And I like to use them as a way of thinking about all the all the moments of great difference on that record. Of course, if there's a, a real extreme, it's probably the most extreme moment. It's probably Revolution Nine to Good Night. Yeah, that, that um, that's a great but, one. <laughs> but in, intentionally so, of course, right? Yes. Yeah, and I I feel like you know the first time I had this album was actually on eight track. So. Oh, how about that? Yeah, okay. it's crazy. I had bought them at a garage sale when I was a kid. This was in the seventies, and. I had the two eight tracks, and the thing about an eight track for people who don't know the terminology is you would have a few songs would be on what they would call a track. So there was no way to go from song to song. You would just go from track to track. So if a track had three songs and you were in the middle of song two and you pressed forward, you would end up in the middle of song six. So it was a really odd way to listen to the album, but listening to it in that way forced me to you always just listen to everything straight through because you didn't want to end up in the middle of a song so my experience this is you know i wasn't listening to it on vinyl originally i was listening to it on eight track so it had a similar thing where it just went from one song to another at least on the first album the way you would on a cd so that was my first experience was very similar to listening to it on a cd that's a, that's very interesting. So it, it limited your choices in, in many ways. It did. And, you know, the fact that the album has so much to, to choose from, I really do think that that's why people love that album so much. And, you know, I wrote something recently about, you know, picking a Beatles Desert Island disc, which is so hard to do. But I had to pick the White Album for two reasons. Number one, the myriad of genres that they cover. Um and the second, it's a double album. You're getting a lot more music than any of the, you know. So if you're gonna if you're gonna be out there, right? Right. You, well. you got to get two. You know, we're talking close to ninety minutes in comparison to if you go with an early Beatles record, you're lucky if you get thirty four. So, I never was one to subscribe to the idea, the George Martin idea of it would have been a better single album. I I I can't find a song on there that I would take off. I, I can't either. And, and, you know, a quick note on that. Um, I, I really, um, you're not going to catch me say too many things that would ever seem like I'm, I'm panning George necessarily. Uh, but I've, I've always found that to be one of his weakest talking points. Um, and even perhaps a kind of sour grapes uh, over his experience with that record um, <laughs> for, for many good reasons. Right? <laughs> But, um, you know, I'm not questioning his, you know, his reasoning behind it, but he sure doesn't seem to hold a lot of uh, a lot of weight with that argument. It really seems more like a talking point. And 
a talking point that he definitely, you know, truly developed after the record was done. So it wasn't as though he was sitting there waving a finger and saying, you know, guys, I don't think you ought to do it that this way. That was really his later talking point that he developed, uh, maybe even as a way of explaining that experience for himself. Right. Right. Um, and, and we all do that. So I, I understand that, you know, he's a person, too. Um, but I do think that that's really kind of a, an ex post facto talking point that um, I, has probably caused a lot of people way too much uh, stress over the years. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think it was very interesting when Chris Thomas was speaking at the symposium and he said that George Martin was surprised that when he came back, how much they had gotten done. So I think, you know, and this is armchair psychiatry, I'm sure there was always a feeling of, they did so much while I was on holiday, more than I would have expected them to get done and to like have such, you know, start and finish so many songs in that short period of time. I mean, you would have thought he would have expected it knowing where they were at this point, which I think was part of the reason he went on holiday was because their growing interest as producers and their ability to produce themselves. You know, at, at some point, the students have taken over and... The teacher could look at it as I've taught them really well, but you could also look at it as, well, what's my place now? Absolutely. And, and you know, it's not for nothing that um, this is his uh, meal ticket. True. At this point, he's left EMI. He needs, uh, he needs this relationship to succeed. And, uh, you know, he was such a great politician with them. And that episode was the moment when he wasn't. Uh, a lot of things happened there that are, are very uh, powerful in terms of the longer reach of the Beatles career. So, for example, you know, George misses not just those sessions uh, that are in the studio, but he also misses uh, the, the shoot that they do at Twickenham uh, for the David Frost show. Right. And because of that, he's not there at the end when they're throwing down the scotch and cokes and they're saying, you know what? We should do this again. Let's let's go back and do some shows. And so George misses the ideation of the Get Back Project. And that's big. That That's huge. And you wonder, had he been there for all of that, if it would have gone differently, if maybe the shows that they were planning on doing, the live shows to support the White Album, if that might have actually happened. It might have indeed, but even more importantly, he would have then been involved in, in the planning process. He was always there at the beginning. And so essentially what he missed was the formative moment for their next project. And that had never happened to him before. That's so, true. Yeah. I mean, it was a, <laughs> it was a, a truly political miscalculation by a man who was very good calculating politically <laughs> yeah it sounds like he picked the wrong time to go on vacation that year he really did um and of course it didn't help that he was spending uh some parts of the rest of the year sort of in a bit of a fit um <laughs> right you know, and pe people tend to notice when uh you don't seem to be happy yeah and uh, that, that wasn't helping him either when i talk about this in class this is real life right this is uh this is the real life, to quote the movie that's so so popular right now. This is that, that moment when we make decisions, and I always tell my students, you vote with your feet. Showing up is one of the most important things we do. Yep, that's very true.
Well, we're going to show up right now with Happiness is a Warm Gun and Martha, my dear. Thanks a lot, Ken. Thank you. She's not a girl who misses much. Oh, yeah. She's well acquainted with the touch of the velvet hand Like a lizard on a windowpane The man in the crowd with the multicolored mirrors on his hobnail boots Lying with his eyes while his hands are busy working overtime A soap impression of his wife which he ate and donated to the National Trust I need a fix cause I'm going down Down to the bits that I left up town I need a fix cause I'm going down can do me no harm because it's a warm gun mama happiness is a warm gun yes it is happiness is a warm yes it is but don't you know that Is a warm gun, mama.
Well, that's it for this time, Beatles fans. I hope you enjoyed part three of the Beatles Multitrack Meltdown's 100th episode celebration. I'm Anthony Robustelli, author of I Want to Tell You, The Definitive Guide to the Music of the Beatles, Volume 1, 1962-1963, and the Steely Dan FAQ, all that's left to know about this elusive band. Tune in to hear more deconstructed mixes of classic Beatles songs, solo cuts, live tracks, and much, much more. You can pick up the books on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or any of your favorite booksellers. And you can pick up my new CD, The Steely Dan Sessions, Interpretations of Unrealized Classics, at anthonyrobostelli.com, CD Baby, iTunes, or you could stream it on Spotify or any of your favorite providers. You could also stream past shows on Podbean and iTunes. You could follow me on Instagram and Twitter, ShadyBearBKLYN, and like the Facebook page for I Want to Tell You and the Steely Dan FAQ. See you next time.